we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. If you want to kill someone, just shoot him. Jesus Christ, like real Alexei. It's impossible to believe it. It's kind of stupid. The, the whole idea of poisoning with a chemical weapon, what the f***? This is why this is so smart. Because even reasonable people, they refuse to believe like, what? Come on, poisoned? Seriously? That is the voice of uh, Russia's most famous dissident, Alexei Navalny, uh, an opponent, a critic of Vladimir Putin, an individual who is uh, in prison because of that, remains in solitary confinement at a maximum security prison and is in poor health, in large part due to the poisoning that he was subjected to. Uh, This is all the uh, subject of an Oscar-nominated documentary, Navalny. Uh, just won the BAFTA Award for Best Documentary Feature. That's the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. It is nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Film, an award to be handed out uh, this weekend at the Academy Awards. But this is a politically significant film, and not just sharing the story uh, of this prominent dissident, but also helping to better understand how he was targeted and exposing some important facts about his poisoning. It was a story that was difficult to tell and a film that was essentially made in secret, but a significant film and and one I think we all need to be grateful was made and a story that did need to be told. The film, as mentioned, is called Navalny. Uh, Joining us on the line to talk more about it is the uh, Canadian, the Calgary-born producer behind the film, Odessa Ray, joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Odessa, great to have you with us here. And I mean, congrats on all the accolades, obviously, but uh, such an important story here. But good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, it's such such a pleasure to be on my hometown radio station. Absolutely. So... In terms of what's going on with Alexei Navalny right now, as mentioned, he's mm-hmm. in jail, in maximum security, in, in, in poor health. But what's your sense of how he's doing, how his, his spirit is? You know, Navalny is someone who, from the very beginning, was just astonishing in how, in his resilience, he truly is just one of the most uh, resilient people I think I've ever met because I know for a fact that he's being tortured in the prison that he's being held in right now. He's in solitary confinement in a very maximum security prison um, outside of Moscow, and they are literally torturing him. They, They weaponize other inmates 
basically by putting them in the infirmary and then putting them back into Navalny's cell until he too becomes sick. He recently was battling a fever for weeks and they would give him three glasses of water a day and that was it. Um, they put another inmate who was mentally ill in the cell opposite him who was screaming through the night so that he couldn't sleep. They chained his bed to the wall from about 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. So even while being deathly ill and lost almost 15 pounds, um, he wasn't able to lie down during the day. You know, so it's just an unimaginable amount of pain that he's going through, which is very, very sad for all of us and hard to hear about. Um, and at the same time, you know, if you read the messages that he gets out to put on his social media platforms, his spirit is is so high. He continues being um, one of the loudest uh, anti-war activists within Russia, um, even though the, the main reason they are torturing him so badly right now is because of his anti-war activism, which is right now not allowed in okay. Russia. So, yeah, it's it's extraordinary to watch him. In terms of this all coming together, I mean, there's there's clearly a story that needs to be told there. Uh, but but at the same time, you know, it's it's about getting his trust, his willingness to to want to share that story, just all of the security considerations that go into meeting with him, documenting all of this. So this came together in a sense. So this is well, he's still in Germany. This is after the poisoning is, is kind of the timeline here. Yes. So he had come out of the coma and been moved to a small town in the Black Forest in southern Germany to recover. And that is when Christo Grozev, the journalist in the film, our Bulgarian nerd with a laptop, um, started reaching out to him because Christo, being Christo, was independently investigating this poisoning that was a very international story at at this point. And that's what Christo does. You know, he investigated the Skirpal poisoning. So it was like a very um, natural progression for him to start looking into the poisoning of Navalny. And Christo was the one, at the time, Daniel Rohr, who's also a Canadian director, and I were working on another um, documentary in uh, Ukraine with Christo. And that was not going very well. And um, Christo sort of said to us, I think, on the plane back from uh, Kiev to Vienna, I, I think I have a lead into who poisoned Alexei Navalny. And we were like, you know that guy? You know, and um, sure enough, through a few conversations, it took a few weeks, but uh, eventually Daniel, myself and Christo found ourselves driving um, about nine hours from Vienna to this small town in the Black Forest to pitch Navalny on our documentary idea. And of course, they are very uh, hesitant and very have, have a lot of safety concerns. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, they asked for things like they wanted to look through Daniel and my bank accounts because they wanted to make sure we weren't getting paid by any foreign governments. And they did background checks on us. And we arrived with a, a camera equipment in our car sort of ready to start. And I, we basically said to them, listen, like if two weeks in, two months in, you don't like it, we'll just stop and we'll give you all the footage. Like we had no rights to uh, holding on to the footage in the first days. We just said, let's see how it goes. And Christo 
said very, I think, very um, importantly that they were obviously in this period that should just be documented. We don't know who for yet, but let's let's just document it. And here were this team we trust, and why don't we see how it goes? And that's how it started. Well, and and it brings to to you know one of the more remarkable moments in all of this. So you mentioned Christo's investigative work and and being able to narrow down on you know the the agent who might have been responsible for the poisoning. So then you get this moment where Navalny himself uh, comes up with this plan to to basically trick this agent into a confession, a phone call that you were there to document. Correct. Yes. No, this was an extraordinary morning and probably one of the scariest shooting days on set. I think uh, it started about 4.30 in the morning. Um, Navalny and Maria Pevchik came over to the Airbnb that uh, Daniel and I had rented in the Black Forest. It had this big room with this big table, and we sort of set it up in a way that they could work from it because um, it was COVID and there weren't that many locations. And so Navalny came over at about 4.30 in the morning. We started the calls around 5.30 a.m. We had a target. They had a target list of the people who they had identified as on the kill team to start prank calling. And Christo wired the phone calls so that it looked like it was coming from the FSB headquarters, even though it wasn't a secure line. Maybe if you were sort of dumb enough, you might fall for it. But to be honest, none of us thought that it would be successful. We just thought, okay, this will be an interesting set piece. Uh, We had about two hours sleep set up for the call. Navalny came over and they started calling. And you'll see in the film, the first couple phone calls were just basically like, hi, this is Navalny, why do you try and kill me? And they identified his voice or they hung up, etc. Mm-hmm. And then he switched it up. And I don't think uh, Daniel and I, we weren't completely clocking what he was going to do like the night before and the days before. Um, and he started talking. And we don't speak Russian, but you could you could tell that something something big was going on. You know, that obviously this guy kept talking and the facial expressions of Maria and Christo. I mean, we, we just knew something big was going down. <laughs> Yeah, so, something pretty huge. So essentially, then yes. this this agent thinks he's speaking to somebody else and is mm-hmm. is sort of openly talking about how this yeah. all unfolded. Yeah, because Navalny pretended to be an an assistant of like Patrushev that needed mm-hmm. to have a document on uh, the big boss's desk by ten a.m. And when there was pushback from Kudratsev, the guy on the other line, he was basically Navalny was like, "Come on, guy! Like you, you I need to get this done too. Like stop." You know, stop uh, uh, um, uh, breaking my balls. Like, just let's get it done. We just need this report done. You know, and he was really quite good. He was just masterful in his um, in his uh, theatrics, I guess, pretending to be Patrushev's assistant. So you know, you've captured something incredible at that moment, but it, it does raise the stakes. You know, you're already dealing with um, you know sensitive matters, to put it mildly. Yeah. But now yeah. it's just it's at a whole other level at this point, isn't it? No, it really, the, the minute that phone call ended and Krista goes, we, he confessed everything and we knew like there, this was, you know, Daniel and I, I mean, it was mayhem, you know, Krista was like, we were like, upload the footage, like we, we've got to get it safe. We thought if the FSB are doing their job, they're going to walk through that door, shoot us all and take this footage because when you when you get something like this on film or recorded, I mean, you think this kind of thing should take down this Russian regime. You know, this is this is the caliber of something that you would hope would make a difference. And so it was just 
crazy. Like, yes, we were trying to secure the footage. Christo got on the phone with the German police, but it was still only about 6.30 in the morning there. And um, uh, we, we, you know, no one was answering. So we were calling for backup. And it was just, that was definitely one of those mornings that I think Daniel and I just looked at ourselves like, Whoa, are we are we naive or is this okay? Mm. Are we are we safe here? <laughs> That's incredible. So your your time with him ends uh, in early 2021. He makes the decision to return to Russia, and and yeah. you know all of this establishes what what he knew full well that you know they they tried to kill him in Germany. Uh, he's returning to Russia where he knows he could be killed, he could be imprisoned. He's well aware of all of this. But, What's your sense of why he did it and why it was important to return? I mean, this is a conversation I had many times with Navalny. And Navalny is a Russian politician. And you have to understand that the precedent that had been set to that point was any dissident or Russian politician who tried to remain relevant from outside Russia became irrelevant almost immediately. If you're not in Russia, the Russian people don't care. You left. You know, why should we listen to you? And here's Navalny with this message of don't be afraid, don't look down and don't give up. You know, so he was like, how can I have integrity and not go back to fight for the Russian people? And he, at the time, I mean, to be honest, it was also before the Ukraine war, which changed everything. And also we understood from the invasion of Ukraine how ruthless uh, Putin actually had the capacity to be. And he, at the time, I think Alexei is someone who's very optimistic. And so I think he thought, okay, if I face some court time, if it's some prison time, maybe a year, maybe two, maybe three, you know, I, 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 I can do that. It'll be in a, a prison where I'm allowed to read. Like this scenario that's playing out of now he's sentenced to 13 plus years facing another 15 years in this pretty much gulag, solitary mm-hmm. confinement outside of Moscow. This was not, he, he did not think this would come to, um, to, to play out, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't seen the film. I think he even posted something online in, in kind of his sort of joking tone that, you know, he doesn't have a subscription to HBO Max in, in the, the prison he's in. But he hasn't seen it. I don't imagine that for anyone in Russia who wants to see it, that that's that's easy to do. Well, actually, the film was um, put on, ripped and put on torrent sites about three days after the Sundance premiere. Oh, really? And I have to say, like, you know, we were pretty happy about it, but Putin, um, Putin had it taken down pretty, pretty fast. But I think with the use of a VPN or a torrent site, a lot of Russians might have seen it, but not in a big way. It's yeah. more if you're able to sort of navigate the restrictions. And that is a dream of ours. That's something that we are fighting for, looking for a way to do, and will not give up until we do it. What's the thing going into this weekend? I mean, as, as a filmmaker, it's it's about the craft. It's about what you're making. It's it's about that kind of an honor. But the significance as well of, you know, potentially this film uh, winning an Oscar, the, the attention, the further attention that could bring to this. I mean, it's it, it brings another dimension into to all of this. So what are your thoughts on on that side of it and, and how all of this attention can ultimately help achieve that goal? It is. It truly is. Uh, This film has a very strong anti-war message. In a sense, it's the solution to what's happening right now in Ukraine with Russia's invasion. 
Um, and it has a very, very powerful message for the rest of the world. Alexei's message is fight authoritarianism wherever it exists. Don't be afraid. You know, stand up for what you believe in and fight for it. And of course, winning would be incredibly powerful, not like, you know, the artistic side is great, but our goal, which has always been our goal, is getting and keeping Alexei's voice in the public sphere. Him talked about is makes it harder for Putin to kill him. Um, keeping the awareness, keeping that movement alive, of, of, alive of, of Russian resistance to the current political regime. I mean, this film uh, is has such an important message, and I do hope that it goes as wide as it possibly can. Yeah, we'll let people know in this country it's streaming on Crave, uh, so Canadians yeah. certainly do have access to this. Uh, all the best with everything this weekend. Uh, Odessa, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, producer Odessa Ray, one of the producers of the film Navalny, as mentioned, uh, streaming now on Crave on HBO Max uh, in the U.S. Uh, not available in Russia, as you might expect. But uh, a powerful story nominated for Best Documentary Film at uh, this weekend's Academy Awards. So fingers crossed uh, on Sunday uh, that this film can prevail and help bring further global attention to the cause of Alexei Navalny and his remarkable story. Off the top in this hour, the latest on Bill C-18, the Online News Act, Google has been uh, facing some criticism for removing links for some users to Canadian news sites and news articles. Now, Google says they are going to restore that for everybody, but they say in an open letter to Canadians, we do not believe the current draft of C-18 is the best path forward. We've been transparent with the government about our concerns. Bill C-18 puts a price on free links. When you put a price on linking to certain information, you no longer have a free and open web. Requiring payment based on linking encourages cheap clickbait, not quality journalism. Google cares deeply about the future of journalism in Canada. We want Canadians to know we're committed to working constructively with the government on reasonable and balanced solutions to fix Bill C-18. Well, our next guest has certainly been involved in the scrutiny of this legislation, has some serious concerns herself. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. Senator, good to have you back with us here. Always a pleasure, Rob Breckenridge. So what do you first of all make of this uh, open letter from uh, Google today and, and just the way they've responded to this in recent weeks? Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in very much plague on both, both their houses mode right now. Yeah. Um, I think Google has been incredibly disingenuous. I mean, Google, this was a shot across the bow. This was a flex. You know, they denied more than a million Canadians access to news without telling them or warning them. So it's not as though they had the chance to, you know, go to Bing or Yahoo or get their news elsewhere. They were just suddenly denied access to Canadian news. And Google said they did this as an experiment to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is a miscalculation on their part strategically because what has happened is that I think a lot of Canadians who, like me, were quite concerned about C-18 are now even more concerned about the idea that Google can just sort of Um, for its own business and political interests, uh, decide what we see and don't see in order to make a point is a really clear reminder to all of us of the extraordinary power that Google has to control our perception of reality. 
And just today, I've been watching online uh, Sabrina Germania, the, uh, the Google executive who came before the House Heritage Committee, was just savaged by MPs from every single party as she struggled to try to justify what Google had done. This open letter from her is is more of the same. And I think it's I, I think it's not it is not transparent. Let's put it that way. I think that's the politest way to put things. I mean <laughs> yeah. Google is mad about C eighteen. I am also unhappy about C eighteen. I, however, do not have the power that Google does to decide what you do and do not see and to decide you know, what news they will and will not be showing Canadians. And I think this is a wake-up call for all of us about just how vulnerable we are to manipulation by American media giants. So what do you see as some of the problems here with C-18 as it's written? You've said you're, you're uncomfortable with the bill, you have concerns about the bill. What, what's wrong with it? You know, you, as you know, Rob, I was a journalist for 30 years before I crossed over to the dark side and became a politician. Yeah. Uh, I am as concerned as anybody about the future of Canadian journalism. And that means I'm concerned about the future of this radio station. It means I'm concerned about the future of the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal. It means I'm concerned about the future of, you know, McLean's and Alberta Views and, and every other magazine that is struggling for advertising dollars. And there is no doubt that Google and Facebook together have a hammer lock on advertising revenues. Together, they make up about 80% of advertising revenues in this country, which leaves everybody else um, who's a conventional advertising platform like radio, television, print, uh, scrambling for the crumbs. The problem I find with C18 is that the premise is so hypocritical. It's basically saying Google and Facebook, you share links, and therefore you are taking something that belongs to the media, and therefore you should give them money. Now, there's no doubt that Google and Facebook have lots of money, and there's no doubt that they have a huge competitive advantage to the point of, you know, oligopoly uh, that is disadvantaging every other conventional advertising platform. That said, I don't think there's a logical nexus that says, you know, we all share links. I mean, goodness knows the people at QR77 are very happy to share links to interviews like this one. They're not, you know, they don't feel... Logically, Google and Facebook aren't taking away from the media. They're actually driving traffic towards media outlets. But my other concerns with the bill are, are much more pragmatic. We've just seen the power that Google has to control what we read, to control what we see. So now we're going to make Canadian news dependent on Google and Facebook. I mean, we were told in the Senate that Google and Facebook are to provide up to 35% of the operating revenues of every Canadian news outlet. Well, that makes us all in the media beholden to Google and Facebook. Yeah. And I don't think that is going to go well to make Canadian media a client vassal of, of these two giant media conglomerates. I'm also really concerned that smaller media outlets are going to be disadvantaged because how are they going to be able to negotiate toe-to-toe -to -toe with these media giants? Um, this is supposed to be uh, final offer arbitration. It's binding. But who's to say that small groups, even if they can come together and bargain collectively, are going to have the strength to do that? 
people who support this bill keep pointing to Australia and saying, well, it worked really well in Australia, this kind of model. That argument rings hollow when you know that Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, uh, which is, you know, part of the Fox Media Empire, Mm -hmm. was the largest recipient of funding in Australia, and that News Corp just announced massive, massive layoffs. So the idea that somehow this is a panacea that is going to save news, I think, is a really dangerous – it's a very simplistic argument. So I have all kinds of technical philosophical concerns about C-18, but I am every bit as angry at the idea that Google is basically holding Parliament to ransom and saying, you know, nice news ecosystem you got here. Shame if anything happened to it. Well, yeah, I mean, they're flexing their muscles, no doubt about it. But I mean, it's it's a reminder that if if you if you say to to someone or to an entity that if you keep doing this, we're going to charge you that that person or that entity has the option then to just not do that thing, which in this case would be linking to to news articles. Yeah. So Google and Facebook have both said publicly on the record that if C-18 passes, they are seriously considering just taking Canadian news off their site. And I think it's really important to note that they don't make a lot of money. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the premise that is hollow at the heart of C-18 is the idea that somehow Google and Facebook are monetizing the links. That's not actually how their business model works. I mean, Google News doesn't make any money by sharing links to news stories or radio interviews like this one. And Facebook makes very little advertising profit out of sharing links. I mean, they have outcompeted conventional media in the advertising space. But the idea that somehow they are monetizing links is, I mean, it's just not true. So, you know, I, I, I've already spoken in the Senate about my concerns about C-18. Uh, that was before Google started, you know, I was speaking to a very senior government person the other day, and I said, correct, Prairie, term for what Google has been doing is dicking around with the algorithm. So, you know, any sense the algorithm is somehow transparent and neutral has been blown out of the water. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the really unfortunate side effects of this is that I've been fighting really hard for sensible amendments to C-11, which is the, um, you know, the online streaming bill, Mm -hmm. including uh, an amendment that would have been quite beneficial to YouTube and YouTube users. And I think the government was particularly ill-inclined to give a, a fair hearing to that amendment because, you know, uh, YouTube is, a, is is owned by Google. And I think Google really, you know, really stepped in it, um, you know, step, stepped on the rake that bashed them in the nose. And I think this is, this is also having a, an impact on the C-11 debate. Well, and I did want to ask you about it because I, I guess it speaks to the role that the Senate might be able to play here because I think there were some very sensible changes proposed to C-11 that, that would make sure that user-generated content didn't fall under the scope of this legislation. It looks as though that's going to be voted out. So your thoughts on that and what that portends for, you know, making any changes to C-18 here? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really frustrated. I, I will say to the government's credit they have accepted, I think, 18 of our 26 amendments, including a couple of amendments that, that I other amendments that I had made, which I think were really important. Uh, they accepted my amendment, which takes away uh, power of the government to interfere with CRTC decisions on a really sort of micromanaging basis and to return more authority to the independent CRTC. They accepted an amendment that I made 
to take the word disinformation out of the bill um, and, uh, you know, to, to, to make you know, media outlets responsible for deciding, you know, what is and isn't disinformation, uh, which I thought was going to be politically very problematic. Uh, but they did not accept the amendment that was authored uh, by my colleague, Senatrice Nizel Deschenes, with uh, some, with, you know, with my support, which would have clearly excluded user-generated content. I'm I'm frankly a bit baffled. I mean, I worked I worked very hard on that amendment with uh, Senator Smithville Duchenne and her staff, and uh, she and I have spent the last few weeks lobbying in a way that I don't think senators are quite used to doing. I've been calling, you know, cabinet ministers and and members of the Heritage Committee and really pushing um, in a way I've never done before for this particular amendment. And we took it we took it right up to the tip top tip. Yeah. And we, you know, we were not successful. And I think, I, I think that's a great disappointment, not just to digital creators who wanted the assurance that the work they do online, the film, animation, music, um, visual arts, I mean, all the things that they are doing that are so cool, you know, the stand, everything from stand-up comedy to uh, children's programming, um, we wanted them clearly excluded. You know, what I've been told is that the government will make that exclusion clear in regulation. Uh, that is not the same thing. No. Indeed, it's not. So in the meantime, so we'll is, see... Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so your real question was, what does that mean for, for future amendments? Um, I don't think it necessarily... I mean, I, I, I want well, to like, do, do, do you even government... bother now? Like, do you even bother changing C-18? Well, yeah, because, right? because with... With C-11, they did accept 18 amendments, some of which were really important, and some of which came, you know, one of them was from very conservative Senator Denise Batters. Others came from uh, Canadian Senators Group Senators, you know, Pamela Wallen and Jim Quinn. So, I mean, the government, I mean, they accepted 18 substantive amendments. It's not nothing. So it certainly doesn't mean that I'm giving up. C-18, though, is going to be harder to amend because C-11 was a great big, sprawling uh, regulatory framework. There were lots of places to, to tweak and, 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 and twiddle along the edges. C-18 is a pretty straightforward bill, and it doesn't have as much scope for amendment. Right. And, you know, I don't know that there are amendments that can really solve its central, its central problems. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll leave it there. We'll see where it all goes from here. Always do appreciate uh, our time. Paula, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Take care, Rob. Bye-bye. You as well. There you go. Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simon. So some thoughts on C-18, her concerns over what the government has proposed here, her concerns on how Google has responded. And yeah, it's unfortunate to see what's been going on with C-11 and, and why the government's being so intransigent on that. One has to ask themselves after a while, why do we keep doing it? Why are we doing this? This really began back in 1918 as a practice uh, that was supposed to save energy. And since then, we've adjusted it. Today, daylight savings time, which started out as six months, uh, was extended to eight months in 2005, clearly showing you where people's preference were. So we're doing this back and forth of, of clock changing for about 16 weeks of standard time a year. Okay, that's Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio speaking on the Senate floor a year ago when the Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act that would make daylight saving time permanent. But that bill stalled in the House. The House didn't pass it, and therefore it didn't happen. So this month, Senator Rubio is trying again. 
the control of the House has changed since last year. There's bipartisan support now for this legislation. It seems much more likely that the United States is going to pass this legislation, is going to stop changing the clock. Now, that doesn't obligate us to do so. We can keep doing what we're doing if we want. I think there's going to be a lot of concern, maybe a lot of pressure from the business community that we stay aligned with our trading partners to the south. I know in B.C., B.C.'s legislation really speaks directly to the idea of being in sync with the rest of the West Coast. So if California, Oregon, Washington uh, have changed their practice, uh, B.C. would follow suit. Then that maybe puts Alberta in a bind. If B.C. makes a change, do we need to make a change? Mind you, we coexist next door to Saskatchewan where we're the same time as them for part of the year and then not the other part of the year. But it's going to be interesting to see the domino effect uh, if the United States goes down this path, which, uh, as mentioned, appears likely at this point. So joining us to talk about what this all might mean, how likely it is that this weekend's clock change, set your clock ahead an hour this weekend, uh, could be the last time we do so. Now joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this, someone who does a lot of research in this area, uh, Werner Antweiler is a professor of business at UBC in Vancouver. Professor Antweiler, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, hello, and thank you for having me on your program. So this bill from uh, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio been reintroduced in the Senate. It, it's passed the Senate once before uh, it got stalled in the House. Why do you think it might be different this time around that this bill could succeed? Yeah, it has been reintroduced just a few days ago, and uh, the House leadership has changed. Uh, uh, so there is some sense that uh, with the new House leadership, uh, they may bring it to a vote. And uh, it has bipartisan support, so there is the expectation that if it is brought to a vote, it actually would pass. And uh, given that it has passed unanimously in the Senate before, there's also the expectation that uh, with the bipartisan support, it will pass there too, and it will be signed into law by the president. Yeah, the, the news release that uh, Senator Rubio's office put out, uh, you know, quotes a number of Democrats as well as Republicans expressing their support for this. So uh, there is uh, support across the aisles. That makes things very interesting. So your sense of the impact this would have on Canada, this is clearly not binding on Canada in any way, but it would be really difficult, wouldn't it, for Canada to stick with our status quo if the U.S. goes in this direction? Yeah, that is right. Uh, traditionally, we have always aligned our time zone policies with the United States. The U.S. has a uniform time act that sets the time zones, and uh, that is a great benefit for Canada to align uh, to further the interests of commerce. For example, the auto industry in Ontario and Michigan is very uh, closely aligned. Here in BC, we have a lot of trading relations with California. And so it is uh, very important to essentially align the time zones as much as possible uh, because that is in the interest of uh, the uh, businesses and, and anyone who's actually crossing the border for, uh, for even travel. So the uh, practice has been to align and uh, the um, uh, provinces, uh, British Columbia and Ontario, have laws on the book that would allow them to align with the state's south of the border if they change. So, for example, British Columbia has an implementation law since 2019 that allows them to align with Oregon and Washington State and, and California. And they will follow. They have laws of their own that would come into effect once the Federal Uniform Time Act is changed. Right. So this would fall to the provinces, though, to make that decision. That is correct. Um, so the uh, implementation laws in BC and Ontario give the cabinet 
the uh, the right to make a change. It's what's called uh, an order in council by the lieutenant governor. And to be clear, this uh, this legislation in the United States would lock in daylight saving time. So it, it would lock in what we're about to enter into. And there's always been that debate that if we're going to end the practice, do we stick with standard time? Do we stick with daylight time? That The, the latter certainly seems to be the preference here. Yeah, so where we had votes, um, it's actually gone a little different in different places. For example, in BC, it was overwhelmingly uh, favoring uh, staying on year-round daylight saving time. And of course, Saskatchewan has been on year-round daylight saving time already for mm-hmm. for uh, the longest time. Uh, Alberta went a little differently. Um, there was a vote, uh, was very close, almost 50-50. And uh, the uh, outcome was that um, Alberta for now is actually staying on the switching force and back. Right. But there is an argument to be made about which uh, time is better, staying on standard time year-round or staying on the lead saving time year-round. Some of uh, the sleep experts actually say it would be better for us and our circadian rhythm to stay on uh, standard time. But again, uh, if, if you ask people, it's also a matter of preferences, and people often do enjoy having more time in the afternoon or evening when it's bright. And uh, in uh, some of the places where uh, referendums have been held or online polls have been held, uh, they tend to have come back very strongly in favor of staying on uh, year-round daylight saving time. Certainly in the United States, certainly here in BC, uh, also in the European Union, actually, they, they have the same struggle as, as uh, North America. Uh, but uh, Alberta actually has gone a little different. It was interesting. I mean, the uh, the co-sponsor of this legislation in the United States, a Republican member of the House, says there are enormous economic benefits to making daylight saving time permanent. So there's the health side of it, sure, but a lot of this is driven by economic concerns. What are those economic arguments uh, as you see it? Well, I actually would not think it's really the economic concerns that are most pressing. What we do know from the research is that when we uh, spring forward in the spring, uh, and we all lose one hour of sleep, that has led to measurable negative outcomes, for example, in terms of traffic accidents, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes also lost productivity, uh, but also higher hospitalization for certain types of heart uh, diseases. So it is something that has been established in the literature that, yeah, there is an ill effect from that springing forward. It's kind of like imposing a one-hour jet lag on the entire population. And while that's okay for most of us, for a small segment of the population, it's not. And, and that's uh, that, that segment that ends up with a higher rate of accidents. Uh, so that is a measurable effect. Uh, and um, that, that moving force and back is uh, unfortunately not uh, very beneficial to society. Well, yeah, I think, and there are also economic reasons for, I think, wanting to ensure that we're in coordination with the U.S. I mean, businesses in Saskatchewan do manage with uh, other jurisdictions making the change. But I, I think if the United States is going to go down this path, that's going to be one of the big arguments here that, you know, for the sake of commerce, for businesses, that it's important to stay in sync. Is that going to be a big concern here? Yes, absolutely. And it's actually written into the implementation law in British Columbia. The the rationale for uh, actually switching to a a Pacific time zone uh, that won't change is to be aligned with our southern trade partners. The the argument of the north-south alignment is really um, dominant, especially for the time zones where you have commerce that's tightly integrated across the border. I mentioned earlier Ontario and the auto industry, uh, BC as well. Um, so where there is tight integration in terms of business links, yeah, you want to be in the t- same time zone uh, with your business partners who are just south of the border. So that alignment is of great significance. Uh, that is the rationale why we are waiting to see what happens in the United States and only then would move towards adopting year-round daylight saving time.
Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. In the meantime, we will set our clocks ahead this weekend, and uh, and who knows, uh, maybe this will be for the last time. Professor Antvile, appreciate your perspective and insight in all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right, likewise. There you go. Werner Antweiler, uh, professor of business at UBC, has done a lot of research on the issue of uh, daylight saving time. So, yes, we set the clocks ahead an hour, and presumably we'll set them back an hour in November. I mean, if you already have your 2023 calendar, you can flip ahead and it'll show you when we set the clocks back. But it's conceivable that we might decide otherwise before we get to November, depending what happens in the United States. It seemed pretty clear after we voted in 2021 that we're just going to leave it alone, that that was that. You know, despite how narrow the vote was, despite the way the question was framed, that was just kind of it for the time being. But if the U.S. goes down this path, it, it could force our hand. Welcome back. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, 403-974-8255. We'll get back to some of your phone calls in a bit here, but I want to revisit uh, some of the conversation around interest rates and monetary policy. The Bank of Canada uh, on Wednesday announced uh, confirming that they are going to hold their rates steady at 4.5% to wait to see what the impact of all of these previous rate changes has been and will be when it comes to the impact on the economy and more to the point when it comes to the overall inflation rate. We look at the situation south of the border, though, it appears as though the U.S. Federal Reserve may not be done when it comes to rate hikes. That was interesting. Both countries, we had jobs reports today. Uh, Canada's jobless rate held steady at 5%. But the 21,800 jobs created in February was higher than expected. Analysts were forecasting about half that, about 10,000 new jobs. Now, the U.S. saw another big jobs report, uh, over 300,000 jobs created, uh, surpassing the expectation of around 205,000. Same with GDP numbers. The U.S. Uh, most recent GDP numbers were, were still pretty strong compared to what we saw in Canada in the fourth quarter, which was essentially flat growth. So it might make sense for the Bank of Canada to hold steady. Maybe it makes sense for the U.S. Federal Reserve to keep going. But what does that divergence mean? I mean, we saw when the Bank of Canada on Wednesday confirmed it's holding the line, uh, our dollar went down. And we may see more of that. There's concern that a lower dollar could impact the price of imports like food, for example. So a lot to factor in here. But joining us uh, for some thoughts on what this all means and whether the Bank of Canada needs to keep an eye on on what the U.S. Federal Reserve is doing, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Steve Ambler, Professor of Economics at the University of Quebec in Montreal and also holder of the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy of the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Professor Ambler, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Good to talk to you again. So anything uh, you've seen this week surprise you, whether it's, you know, the jobless numbers we saw today or the Bank of Canada's uh, announcement on Wednesday? Uh, n- no big surprises, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the Bank of Canada had already signaled uh, the last time when they rose that uh, the, the rate that they were pretty much done, depending on how things evolved and things uh, have evolved more or less as they expected. Some things better and some things worse. So uh, holding on Wednesday was not a big surprise. You actually did a very good rundown of the data. I must give, I must compliment you on that. Um, you you noted that their the Canadian dollar did fall a bit. It's it's a bit hard to tell whether that. I don't think that was because of the announcement because it was what everyone expected. Yeah. But uh, there was a Senate hearing in the U.S. the previous day where Jerome Powell uh, basically talked really tough 
So I think that's what uh, that's what did it to the exchange rate. It made made the U.S. dollar stronger because because of it. Um, now that so you know as of Wednesday, uh, you know the Canadian dollar is a bit lower. But uh, unless you're an exchange rate day trader, most people when they're they're thinking of investing either in the U.S. or in Canada take into account what they think interest rates are going to be doing. A little bit further down the road, so you know, most of the impact of U.S. rate hikes, which are now expected by markets, have already been sort of baked into the exchange rate. So unless there's uh, news, I don't see any any big fluctuations in the Canadian dollar, U.S. dollar exchange rate down the road. So we are expecting the the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve, to 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 go further on interest rates. Uh, yes, yes, they've. But that's uh, Powell made that very clear uh, on Tuesday, and I mean that that's understandable. Um, Canadian inflation is already lower than U.S. inflation. The headline rate was five nine in January versus six four, I think, in the U.S. And it's also it's also coming down faster. Mm -hmm. um, another thing to to realize is that if if the Bank of Canada holds its rate steady. As inflation drops, that actually makes real interest rates gradually go up, uh, which makes, uh, in, in real terms, it makes borrowing more costly. So uh, I think that I think the bank is prudent to to hold and see how much more impact their previous hikes are going to have on the economy. You you noted in your introduction that uh, economic growth was already pretty stagnant or was stagnant in the fourth quarter in Canada, whereas it's still fairly strong in the U.S. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, the Bank of Canada's mandate is the situation in Canada. And you look at that, it, you know, inflation is falling, the economy is slowing. These are the relevant factors the bank considers in, in setting its rate. And the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, they deal with the situation in the U.S. So does the Bank of Canada need to concern itself with what's happening south of the border? Does the Bank of Canada factor in or consider dollar depreciation? Oh, certainly, because that does feed through to Canadian inflation. So imported final goods are built in pretty much right away to the consumer price index, and then intermediate imports make things more costly to produce in Canada, and then they eventually make uh, lead to price increases. So, But as I said, I think a, a, the a lot potential increases in the U.S. dollar or depreciation in the Canadian dollar is already baked in, So, but the Bank of Canada is going to be looking to surprises further down the road. I think the, the potentially the most worrying thing is if uh, the world economy and the U.S. economy weaken, or in general, I mean, especially the world economy, the U.S. dollar is a traditional safe haven. So there's still a possibility of a shift to the U.S. dollar if things go poorly in the rest of the world, both economically and in terms of geopolitics, and that would lead to... Uh, an unexpected appreciation in the U.S. dollar, and the uh, Bank of Canada will be looking closely at it, the impacts of that on uh, Canadian inflation, for sure. Right. And, that, you know, there's that concern that if the dollar depreciates, uh, you know, the, the price of food, for example, could be impacted if it costs more to, to bring in imports, and that could then still contribute to, to inflation. How, how real a concern is that? Oh, it's a, it's a definite concern. And uh, I think you know, when, when we talked before, I think we, we made reference to things like global wheat prices and fertilizer prices and fertilizer shortages, which are highly dependent on what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine. And that's, uh, that doesn't look like it's going to uh, solve itself anytime soon. So we're still potentially facing, I've, I've heard some pundits talk about another major increase in world wheat prices this year. 
and that that will certainly affect uh, affect inflation. On the other hand, that's something that the Bank of Canada can't really do a whole lot about. That's right. Well, as you say in your piece of the financial boats today, that you know this this is a delicate juggling act. Like this this isn't easy. What the, we're asking the bank to do here. Oh, it's always a, it's always a delicate juggling act. I mean, they they I think they dropped a couple of uh, of balls when they were fairly late. Although pretty much all the central banks were were late right. in starting to to raise rates, but uh, I think they've picked those back up again, and they're they're in the air right now. Indeed, they are. Well, we'll see how it all plays out in the weeks and months ahead here. Professor Ambler, we'll leave it there for now. Always appreciate the insight, though. Thanks for joining us here. Okay, thanks very much. Have a all the best. Day. You too. Uh, you go. Steve Ambler, Professor of Economics, University of Quebec at Montreal. David Dodge, Chair in Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute. Saying that, yeah, you know, for now, the Bank of Canada is right to follow its own course. That we don't have to follow what the U.S. Federal Reserve is doing. The situation in the two countries is different. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.